Hello everyone, I'm Brian Bashan, founder of Evolution Evolution. I had the great joy of connecting with Pablo on LinkedIn. And we all know that sometimes when you connect with someone on LinkedIn, you know, it's always a risk. You don't know how is it going to respond. I have to tell you, it was one of the greatest joys when we had our video conversation. From the very first moment that we connected, there was an authenticity, not just in what was said, but what was not said. Just the way he made me feel welcomed, the way he was excited to be there, to hear who I was, and really drew me in. So if you're looking to connect with someone who's truly authentic, who is a true connector, and can also just lift your spirits up, I highly recommend without reservation, send that note to plot below today. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, in my walks, every man I meet is my superior in some way, and in that, I can learn from him. This means every single person you've ever interacted with has done something slightly different than every single other person, and therefore has something to teach you, and you, my friend, have something to teach them. This means every conversation you have is both a chance to learn something and a chance to make an impact. Every room full of people you walk into is both a library and your stage. And the better you get at getting to know people, the value they each inherently bring, and how to share it with others, the greater the impact you can make on the world. My name is Pablo Gonzalez, and I've created a system called the Relationship Flywheel, designed to create impact through relationships at scale. And this podcast is a living document of how to do it. So hit subscribe right now. If you want to learn how to get to know people, get them to know you, and build a world-class network. Some episodes will be interviews, some episodes will be regular calls with people building rapport, and some will be tactical advice to teach you how to build your own relationship flywheel and achieve anything you want. Now smash that subscribe button and let's get connected. Welcome to the Chief Executive Connector Podcast. I am Pablo Gonzalez, your Chief Executive Connector, and today we have a fascinating fellow with us here. His name is Brian G. Bashant. He's a man who is living proof that life is an evolution. His own journey from being a priest to then an executive in New York City and partner in an executive search company and now founder of his own company, Evolution Evolution. His expertise is helping professional leaders and organizations evolve to be courageous and intentional as a leadership coach, evolved recruitment and inspiration, and evolved recruitment and an inspirational speaker. <laughs> He's based out of Toronto, a city that I sneakily love way too much because I've only been there for two days, but I love it. And is proud to be both an American and a Canadian citizen, eh? which automatically makes him a super nice person. Finally, Brian believes when we ask the question, what do I desire? the truth will intuitively lead us forward. That is the intro that I read out. But on a personal note, I met with Brian not that long ago. We had an unbelievable conversation. He is like a warm cup of tea in your brain. And I can't wait to get into this. Brian, welcome to the Chief Executive Connected Podcast, buddy. Excellent. Pablo, thank you. It's so, so great to be here. I was really looking forward to reconnecting with you today. Me too, man. Me too. You got a fascinating story, man. I want to get right into it. But like I told you right before the interview, right? My my podcast is about human connection. And I have this thesis 
that the way that people connect with each other quickest is either to add value to someone's life, which we're going to do a ton of here for the next hour, or if they share a vulnerability with you. So I ask all my guests to start with, share with me something that you're either struggling with right now or something you've struggled with a lot so that our friend that's here with us in our in, in, in their ear can you know, see you as, as for who you are and maybe connect on that level. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things I'm struggling with is, you know, I've always taken real pride and joy in working out. I'm a runner, you know, really enjoy that. This summer I was finishing a 10 K run on a Saturday. I tripped on the sidewalk, came smashing down like baseball player going to home base, dislocated my shoulder and fractured it. And it's the first time in my entire life in 49 years I've ever had anything happen like that. Thankfully, it could have been a lot worse. It's coming along fantastic and I'm really getting strength. But you know what the hard part was, has been for me, a struggle has been not feeling as great about physically about myself in the workouts in the past few weeks and being more limited. And, you know, it's funny, you know, you can you can be more self-conscious, you know, like, first of all, it's COVID, it's lockdown. I've always been proud of, you know, doing that. And it's only just been recently the past few weeks, I'm kind of getting back into a swing. And, you know, it's funny how you can really play mental games with yourself, you know what I mean, about how you feel about yourself. And, and what does that mean? And I've had to come to embrace that, you know, moving your body, engaging your body is a gift, even when you don't feel well. And, and just to be comfortable with that. So that's something that's, you know, just kind of ongoing. And because I have a performance level I want, I haven't been there. And it's something that I just, I just embrace. And it's, it's a, a struggle. But it's something that's just, um, it's also been a gift too. Let me ask you, man, when I hear that, I think, I think a couple of things, right? I think number one, you're a good looking dude that's in shape. And you probably have like this, like self image that has to be somewhat tied to, to how you can perform and how you can look. And I wonder how much of that, is that where the pain is coming from? Or is it coming from, for me, when I get sick or I get injured, I immediately, I'm just like, I'm such an idiot, dude. I got injured. I got sick because I didn't uh, put my laundry away three weeks ago. Right? Like, and I start blaming all these like random things and blaming myself. Where is that kind of like pain coming for you? Totally. It's very easy for me to like pinpoint. I know exactly where it is. I embrace and I see it. It goes back to like so many things in our life when you were growing up or a child. And I remember feeling like at times overweight, you know, and probably not the most most like athletic kid at the time and everything. And then as an adult, I embrace that, you overcome it. And then all of a sudden when you're back there, like, oh my gosh, am I going to be like that? Like these little fears come back. These things come back of like how you view yourself and even as an adult, like, hello, many, many, many years later, it's funny how it can start to create. And that's what happened. That's what happened. So I started doing these like crazy, like really like watching everything I was eating and really going extreme. And I'm like, okay, the issue isn't that. The issue is me and how I'm seeing myself. And so I think it's something that so many people struggle with. You hear more women speak about it, but I know men also struggle with it as well. You know what I mean? And it's something that I embrace and it's something that's very real. And it's just, I, that's the, where it goes back to at that particular moment. That makes a lot of sense, man. As, as somebody who I like to tell people I'm like Oprah because I've got up and down and weight a lot of my life. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I could see, I, you know, I'm definitely resolute that now that I'm like 40, I never, I never want to go back to being fat Pablo again. Right. But like, I could see that fear, you know, on an injury or something like that coming back yeah. and the amount of like judgment I would have for myself. I don't think I could handle it, but I don't, I don't want to derail this whole conversation about body image issues. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's a great question. Great question. Yeah. Cool, man. I'm glad. I'm glad you liked it, Brian. I I introduced you as a former priest. I think that that's that's selling it really short. You got some really elite levels in the Catholic Church. I would love to hear your evolution through your careers and 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 how you've been able to excel across very diverse you know settings. Can you can you yeah. tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I grew up in Boston. So I'm a native Bostonian youngest of five children. I was an OMG baby. You know, there's 16 and a half years between myself and the oldest child. So I kind of grew up like an only only kid. And it was great. And it was really good. I did my undergraduate in Ohio. I went to university and it was a Catholic university. And when I was there, I got involved with kind of the Catholic chaplaincy office. You know, they had outreach programs and, and different, like when they had like the university mass and I'd be one of the readers or one of the servers, et cetera. And that really was another catalyst for me to consider maybe going to the seminary. There had been moments of that when I was growing up as well, a sense of service. I always kind of felt this connection, you know, with something beyond myself. And so I did a retreat my senior year in university. It was in Pittsburgh. And I remember seeing it listed. It was for anyone that was thinking they might have a religious vocation. It's a weekend to come and explore it, et cetera. And at the end of that weekend, I just made the decision that I was going to apply to the seminary. So I went to the seminary. I was a uh, diocesan priest, which means I serve a particular geographic area. And I served for the Archdiocese of Boston. And I was a kind of a diocesan priest for those that are not familiar with like kind of Catholic understanding and how it all works. I was like a general practitioner, you know, think of it this way. A Jesuit is someone who focuses on education, Franciscans on the poor. I was a general practitioner. I served in a parish. I said masses. I went to the hospital, did baptisms, tons of weddings. And I loved it. I assume you must have been like, the priest that everybody beloved in their parish, right? Like you come across as, as that guy, right? Cause you're still young. And this was a while ago, you have this like energy, you're very approachable. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, am I, am I wrong here? Right? Like I grew up in the Catholic church. Yeah. I mean, I think it was really fortunate. I mean, I was sent to a parish that had 2,700 families and yeah, I was young. I was about 27. Yeah. So you're this young priest, you show up, And it was amazing. And the pastor I was with, who's passed away, he was like in his early 70s. And he was, you know, he had one of these tough edges, but he was a big, loving person at heart. And I used to do tons and tons of weddings. I got asked by every family and all this stuff. And he used to say, yep, the reason you're in the doing all the weddings is because they want you to look good in the pictures. They don't want me, the old guy. And so, you know, I was, I have to say, I know I was deeply loved. And when I left, I remember my farewell mass was, it was like Christmas. Like I'll never forget being on the altar and it was standing room only down the aisles through the back. They had a reception after. And I mean, I stood in a line for like over three hours before I could even move just 
It was beautiful. And the gift too has been that so many of those families have kept in touch with me. Just last year, one family in particular that I'm very close to, their daughter was a, a server when I was a priest in the parish. And she said, I always dreamt that you would do my wedding as, you know, as a priest. She said, obviously that can't happen, but she said, I would love it. Could you do the reading? So I went to the wedding last year and did the reading, sat with the family at the head table. And it's been it's been a real gift. It's been a real, real gift to connect with so many parishioners. So I treasure that. And I, I still have so many of their letters and so many of them are connected. It's it's really beautiful. That's that's awesome. You know, it's funny, man. I'm now remembering there was this when I was like probably about 10, 11, there was this Father Michael that young guy, dynamic, good looking. And he got called up to serve for the Cardinal as well. So like, I'm, I'm like totally just like completely reliving it. Like I'm, you put me in his goodbye mass, right? When he said it, but continue, continue with your story, man. I have to indulge you. Yeah, no. And so the reason I left the, so the first assignment was for five years. So usually go to a parish for five years and it's kind of a, a training ground. And I remember the day I went to the parish. So you're, I was ordained on a Saturday. I got my assignment at the end of the ordination and that Monday, I went to the parish, the, the pastor, Bill Haley was his name, wonderful, wonderful priest. He uh, invited me to come. He said, come down, we'll go to lunch, show you where your rooms are, just so you have a sense of everything. And we walked in the church and we walked down the aisle of this beautiful New England church that was built in 1870. And we stood at the, at the, at the front of the altar. And he turned to me and he said, so just so you know, Every priest that's ever come here to be with me has always moved on to other bigger assignments. So one has gone to the diplomatic corps. One has gone on to do this. One's gone on to get his doctorate. He said, I wonder how long you'll be here. And I remember I looked at him like a deer in headlights. And I said, oh, I'm not going anywhere. And he said, we'll see about that. So fast forward four years later, it was an interesting time for, for so many. You may remember like the movie Spotlights that you know, won the Academy Award a few years ago. It was about the epicenter when the sex abuse scandal broke in Boston. And then that trickled throughout the whole nation and the whole world. Boston was the epicenter. And Cardinal Law was the archbishop at the time. And he resigned. And, you know, he resigns, you know, so there could be healing and restitution for the victims and for the church to heal. But a new Cardinal Archbishop was brought in, Sean O'Malley. And he was known as uh, someone who was a healer, someone that could bring growth and healing. And he started to make some changes in those who worked around him. And I got a phone call on a Thursday night. I always remember it was snowing lightly outside. And I got a call from one of the bishops saying, could I come in the next day for a meeting to talk about a possible new assignment? And at that meeting is when I found out that the new cardinal selected me to be his new private secretary, or that would translate into like chief of staff. And my life changed literally overnight. Interesting. So, all right, continue then. So, so your life changes overnight. What, what's going through? Were you, did you have some raging imposter syndrome happening? Did you have any like, why? why am I getting this opportunity right now when they're throwing me into this giant turd pie? Like, right. Like this would have been a great opportunity a year ago, something like that. Yeah. Right. Like tell me about yeah. that. You know, I didn't have imposter syndrome. I was actually just, I was just grateful in a sense that I was 
excited about it. Like there was a sense that when they said it, there was a, I was grateful. I'm like, yeah, I want to pursue this because I, I'll backtrack when the card and the new Cardinal came to Boston, the day he was, you know, his mass of like kind of commissioning of him as the new archbishop, his homily was amazing. Like it was just incredible. You know, the church had been through so much pain and he just spoke with such clarity, such hope, such healing. And I remember sitting there in the back of the cathedral and I said to myself, I want to help him rebuild. Mm-hmm. And I had no. And so for me, I felt like I was there to help him. And, and it was exciting. Like, I mean, you know, I moved in with him. He sold the Cardinal's residence, which was this kind of palatial building. He refused to live there. He sold it. That money was going to be used for victims. We moved to the cathedral rectory, which at that time, to be totally honest with you, was a real dump. Like, I mean, it really needed a ton of work. I mean, there were more mice living there than the parishioners. Like, you know, I mean, it was it was really talk about like we went into being there to be of service and it was good. And but it was beautiful to work with him to help him really bring that healing. And, you know, I was all of a sudden his master of ceremonies. So I was in charge of all his cathedral masses, which I'll be honest with you, I had no training in. Like I, like I had some of it through the seminary, but it just, it came natural. And then when he traveled, I went with him. So when we went to Rome on a pretty regular basis, I was with him. And we stayed inside the Vatican. When he went to go meet the Pope, I would go in with him, you know, for a few moments and and be there and then leave. And, you know, I was so privileged to meet so many people and to use my gifts at a high level and to be a connector like you are for so many priests and people that might not have had access to them. I really saw that as a special mission. At that time, I wanted to be a bridge to help people to have access to him at all times. And so I it was a gift. It was a real, real gift. Yeah, something when you say when you say that I wanted to use my gifts, do you mean what at that point in your life, what did you think your gift was? Yeah. So, I mean, as a priest, when I was in the parish, I loved doing homilies and I knew I was I knew that my presence of who I was, was also a gift that, you know, when I would go to the hospital and whether it was a crisis situation of a young family that I remember being called in at three in the morning and, you know, there was a crisis with a a birth, you know, and, and the baby had died and they wanted to see the priest or, you know, being in a parish situation when someone was in crisis and they came to speak I really felt my gift was being present and giving a sense of hope and giving them a sense that they can move forward, that they weren't alone. When I went to work for the Cardinal, I felt I brought that, but I had other gifts too that I felt, you know, I loved writing. So I became kind of his ghost writer on some of his letters. I loved organizing things. I loved, you know, he was an introverted human being. He's one of the best speakers I've ever heard in my life. But I found when we would go to these dinners, I was always very sensitive that if there were guests at the table, they were nervous, right? They're sitting there with this cardinal. And I was always able to kind of help them feel at ease 
and bridge conversation so it would help things flow and then be able to step back. And, and I love doing that. And it was a, it was, it was a gift to be able to know and be sensitive to how people were feeling and to keep it moving forward. That's really cool, man. You know, the, this role that you're given as this chief of staff, handler, assistant, secretary, whatever you want to call it, right. It's such a dynamic role. And it's so, as you're describing it, I'm like, this sounds awesome, right? Because you you are kind of you are kind of the social lubricator. You're kind of his hype man. You're also his like event organizer, right? Totally. Like outside of, outside of keeping his schedule, it's a dream role for me too, and it's a lot of what I do for my for my for my clients as yeah. well. Yeah, you know, and and the people that you got to me, right? Like I remember when we spoke, you were talking about this the story of just like telling Bill Clinton to chill for a minute. Or or something like that. <laughs> like it was like it was like a yeah. casual like Bill Clinton. Uh... Yeah, it was amazing. It was actually when John Paul II died. You know, we had a media communications office and everything, but I knew when John Paul II was dying, we got words. You know that he was dying. Obviously, the news had it, but we also had some intel information that things were moving forward. I remember going to the Cardinal's office on a Saturday, and I had everything lined up because I knew when he died, we had the announcement ready, there would be a mass at the cathedral. I, I had reservations for us already, like to go to Rome. I had rooms for us already set, like everything was in place. But I remember when we flew to Rome for the Pope's funeral, one of the things that was so moving was we flew from Boston and we flew Lufthansa. I always remember this. We flew Boston to Munich and that we used to do that route, Boston, Munich, Munich to Rome. And we had a press conference at the airport. I always remember that. And then they brought us in. We were in the lounge. And then they brought us on the plane first for this, the, the representative of the airline. And we're sitting there. And all of a sudden, there's no one on the plane. Like, we're the only two sitting in the, in the section there. They upgraded us to business class. And they were very generous. At the they did that. We were there. And all of a sudden... Coming down the aisle were all the flight crew. It was the captain. It was the co-captain, the head flight attendant. And they all came by to offer their condolences. It was one of the most like moving moments. Like it was just, and they just said, you know, we know this is a big moment. They wanted to meet and, and everything. It was really moving. So when we got to Rome, we got to our rooms and, you know, the cardinal went to his room and I'm in my room unpacking, going through the schedules and all of a sudden he knocks at the door and I open up the door and he has this gorgeous envelope. Like I remember, I remember that the, the stationery itself was just beautiful. He said, this is from the U S ambassador to Italy. It was, and it was waiting for me. We're, we're invited tonight to a private event at his residence to meet with the president and all the past presidents of the United States. And it was just the Cardinals. And he said, so you need to make arrangements for us to be able to get there. And I'll see you at six. And I'm like, Oh my God. So I remember like frantically got things together. We went and it was just, you know, we got to the, the residence of the U S ambassador to Italy, beautiful, beautiful building. And we're in this room. Like it's me, a couple other of my colleagues who have the same role and like 10 Cardinal archbishops. And all of a sudden at that time, George Bush, the president comes walking in and and then all of a sudden I see Condoleezza Rice and then I see Bill Clinton's in the corner. And then off to the table in the back was Laura Bush where there was food. 
And I remember she was by herself. Like she was just going to, I walked over to her and I just want to introduce myself. And I, I thanked her so much for coming. And she said, oh, of course. And then all of a sudden, George Bush Sr. came in the room and he's like, oh, hi, Laura. And she's like, oh, I'm sure, you know, you know, President Bush. I'm like, no. But and then I met President Clinton and I circled back later to the Cardinal. And I said to him, I said, have you met everyone? And he said, I haven't seen President Clinton yet. So he said, if you see him. So I'm like, okay, so. He was in the back and who, like, I never could have done this. I just walked up to him and I said, hi, excuse me, President Clinton, you know, introduced myself. So honored that you're here. He's like, oh yes. And, and everything. And I said, the Cardinal would like to, to, to meet with you. So I walk him over and I introduce him to the Cardinal and I'm saying that, who am I? Like, this is insane. Like, I mean, that no one could train you, but at that moment, getting back to about the gift, I felt very calm and it seemed very natural. And, and it just was a moment. It was just one of those moments that later I didn't realize like, wow, okay, that's amazing. But it was a gift. And, and what I learned from the Cardinal was always be fully present in who you are in the moment. And, and that's what I remember about that, that evening. Just there was, there was, it was really powerful. Epic, man. Epic. I'm going to, I want to delineate a couple of things that happened in that interaction that I think are important for our friend that's listening to us. Number one is the, the power of the gatekeeper to me is something, and the network of the gatekeeper to me is something that people, unless you've been a gatekeeper or unless you think about this stuff deeply, people really underestimate it, right? Like your, your level of being able to be like, oh, Mr. Glenn, let me just introduce you to Mr. Cardinal over here, right? Like that, that being that middleman between that puts you in a very, very privileged position. And I think people often overlook that person. And if you zoom out a little bit, what you did with Laura Bush, right? Like seeing, you know, everybody there is there, you know, gawking at the presidents, right? Where, and then you see the first lady and you walk over and it's such a perfect opportunity to, be seen her, for her to be seen she will definitely remember you and 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 definitely you know that then becomes this like oh now i'm going to introduce you to my husband so like two gatekeepers talking to a certain extent even though you're both very powerful people at that moment to me is this like tableau that i dream of as a connector for for how would i say relationship power arbitrage i would i would i would leave it at that you know so so to me that that's a, that's a really really powerful moment man and i think it's really really cool and i want to ask you just one last thing and then i want to move on to the next chapter of your life and and sure. how you transitioned out of that cuz i'm in, like i'm like you know somebody that grew up in the catholic church i told you i i received like the dade county altar boy award when I, when i was like 11 years old so right. uh, my parents are eucharistic ministers right are you familiar with jay shetty Oh yeah. Yeah. He's excellent. Yeah. I just got his book. I just got his book. I just got his book. Yeah. Yeah. I I just got it recommended to me by somebody I really, really admire who's on my podcast in the past. And now I'm like, I'm going to check it out. But like, I think of, I think of the mileage that Jay Shetty's gotten out of talking about like monk training. Mm -hmm. And I really wonder what Catholic priest training is like when you have to become this public speaker, very present person, community connector, shepherd. Can you tell me a little bit about that formation? Yeah, so great insights. First of all, the book is fabulous. And it was actually one of 
his closest friends who I've connected with in New York, who's just an incredible human being, sent me the book because I just think, I think it's great what he's done. For me, the formation of becoming a priest is, is very rigorous. So, you know, most priests have an, have an incredible academic formation. So the seminary itself is a six-year period. It's usually two years of philosophy. This is after university, usually two years of philosophy, you get a degree, and then four years of uh, theological training. I was able to do the seminary in five years, not because I was some superstar student. It's just simply because I had some philosophy credits. I also had a language at that time too. You had to have a language requirement and I had studied German all through university. So I took the German language test and I was fluent enough that it passed what they needed. So I did the seminary in five years. So there's an academic formation that's very rigorous, you know, Monday through Friday. And one of the things about studying for the Archdiocese of Boston was we were part of a um, collection of other theological institutes where we could take courses. So the majority of all our courses were held at the seminary, but I took electives at Harvard Divinity, took a couple electives at Harvard, which were great, at Boston College, at Boston University. And that really was wonderful too. It gave kind of a well-balanced approach. Second, one of the things they do through your formation is you have a pastoral assignment all academic year. So the assignment has a specific focus, but it's, it's integrated to your kind of spiritual and human formation of, as to become a priest. So my first assignment in the, in the seminary was to the women's state prison. And, you know, I found out later that I got that assignment because I was 21, 22. And they said, you know, that assignment is quite demanding and it's going to weed out whether or not you have kind of the skill set. So I went to the prison like this, you know, like right out of university, no sense. And I was there to teach courses to women who were there lifers who had committed murder, different programs about, you know, the sacraments, different things. But they really taught me because they were so beautiful and realizing out of their brokenness that so many of them had in their life that they were the redemption and the power of goodness. So all these assignments you go through also teach you things. So I did that. I did hospice work one whole year, you know, dealing with patients that had, you know, HIV, which was still at that time. I was in the seminary in the 90s. You know, it was more mainstream, but it was still at sometimes stigmatized. I also did mission work in Ecuador. They sent me there once I wanted to do in-depth mission training and language training as well. It was beautiful. So by the time you're ordained, you have this incredible pastoral formation, academic And also you are also trained internally too. Like, you know, you have practicums on how to counsel and, you know, when do you make, you know, referrals, you know, and, you know, how do you really prepare people for for marriage and different things? So you have a lot and you feel in a very good spot when you're ordained, but like any profession, it's not till you start living it day to day to day that it really becomes a reality. You can have all the theory in the world, but when you're a hundred times, it's like couples that want to have a baby, 
But when you finally bring the baby home and you realize you're the mom and you're the dad and you're there, then it's reality. It's like the same point as a priest. Once you're there and your father so-and-so, you are on the spot. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a process. But it seemed like you had some like also built in mentorship, right? Like is mentorship built in in your first four years and stuff like that? Like, is, was that structured or is that kind of like, uh, depends on who your manager is if you go to a Fortune 500 company kind of thing? Yeah. So, you know, what the church, one of the things they had learned is that they started for the first five years when you're newly ordained as a priest, you have these monthly meetings that you come together. And actually the cardinal now, it, we, you'd meet with him. You come together, you'd have some type of a prayer service together, you'd share a meal, there's a topic. They also have you connected with one or two other priests as well as you begin. And so, yeah, it's really important so you have that. And you also have to be proactive too. You know, you have to be proactive in building that out, but they do try and support you the best they can at the very beginning. Interesting. Interesting. So just, it does sound, it sounds like you got a PhD from a Ivy league college and then you went off to a fortune 500 company and it had certain structure, but you also have to make the best of it as well. So, yeah. all right. I, I don't want to, I don't, I, I don't want to belabor on this any longer, man. I would love to continue down your path. You're, you're no longer a priest. You were, you know, what, what happened? Tell me about it. Yeah. So when I was working with the Cardinal, you know, it was, it really was a gift. The cathedral, of the Holy Cross uh, for Boston is in a section of the city called the South End. And it's a really, really cool section of the city right now that, you know, great restaurants, brownstones, all this stuff. But it also had been uh, kind of a neighborhood. It was a very large gay community as well. And it's transitioned, you know, more, you know, it's kind of mixed now, but it, it was a lot. And I remember when I started working for the Cardinal, you know, for me, I had been struggling a little bit the last year or two in the parish, doing all those weddings, seeing people and really knowing that, yes, I was deeply loved, but I also desired to love another person too. And, and that sense of sexuality, my sexuality was coming to terms of being a gay man. I knew it couldn't, it really wasn't misaligned with also my love of God. And the church at times, sometimes would try and tell you that it was and, you know, to it was a cross to bear or whatever it was. But I really was struggling. I was like, I don't think that's the reality of the situation. And I remember being one night, I got back with the Cardinal to the cathedral. This was in my first couple of months working with him. I changed. Obviously, I was dressed really casual and I went for a walk just to get fresh air. It had been like a 16 hour day, like nonstop things. I just went for a walk in the neighborhood and I remember coming by this restaurant that was really nice. And there were two couples that were coming out. They'd gone out together uh, for dinner. There were all these four of them. They were saying uh, good night. And, you know, they had like their bags with them. You could tell they came from work. They were going home and they were both gay couples. And I remember standing, just walking down the sidewalk. And there was just something inside of me that moment. I'm like, I desire that. <laughs> like I, I would love, like, I just desire that. And it really was over the next couple of years that that began a process of really looking at my own spirituality, my own sense of who I was. And being in the role that I was in, I was exposed to so many new people, right? And I remember I met this wonderful priest in another diocese that we had, you know, he had a very kind of high role as well. And we became great friends. We became really, really good friends. 
And he was one of the very first people that told me that he was gay and he was a priest. And I remember that friendship and, and really just as he shared about that, it helped me own who I was too. And then the next piece was, I realized then that I wanted to live fully authentic and fully alive in who I was. There are many that live sometimes in double, you know, double worlds. There are some that, you know, they accept where they're at, but they continue to be where they are. And for me, I just knew that wasn't going to align. And the gift of working with the Cardinal and that role showed me, wow, like I could take who I am and bring that out into the world in a new way and be fully authentic. And so I began, I went to go work with this wonderful uh, Jewish psychologist. And I I say that on, uh, on purpose because I wanted someone who wasn't connected with the church. I wanted someone who was like super neutral that had no invent invested interest. And he was incredible that really helped me. I wanted to test the decision. You know, it's not just about my sexuality and and how I wanted to be, but really about what is the mission I want to carry on in my life. And, And it really, it was a tremendous gift. But, you know, when you go through that, for any of our listeners who are joining in and hearing right now, for anyone who's ever gone through any kind of process of self-discovery or counseling or whatever that may be, there's always other things that come up and, you know, family expectations, overcoming that, what friends, fears of the future. And we worked through that and that gave me the clarity, gave me the peace to know that I could freely move on and embrace, stand in my truth, embrace what's in my heart and do what I had to do. That's brave, man. You know, like I, I, I can't think of any other word outside of like courage to be able to take a decision that you knew inherently that everybody around you was going to be like, what you're giving up your whole life. <laughs> like, and I, the closest thing I've come to that is I was engaged at one point and I broke off an engagement five months prior to the wedding. And the amount of people that came out of the woodwork, you know, me, I thought it was very shameful for me. I felt very ashamed by it, even though I knew it was the right decision. It wasn't the easy decision, but it was the right decision I had to make. She's happily married now. I'm happily married to the love of my life. Right. It wouldn't have worked. And the amount of people that came out of the woodwork, they were like, dude, how did you have the balls to do that? Uh, to me, I, I kind of delineate some stuff in, in what I heard from you right now. Number one, I think the having somebody that is an archetype that you didn't think existed, right? The gay priest tell you, listen, man, you're not alone. Like there is somebody else that's doing this. Mm-hmm. Then, then the complete outsiders help really, really helps a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the psychotherapists help <laughs> really, really helps a lot, right? Like... Absolutely. And it was interesting too. I mean, I kept, I held my cards close, right? Like I didn't tell a lot of people, you know, I was high profile. I wanted to, to really, this was my decision. This was my truth to tell when I was ready to tell it. So yes, I had the support of a psychologist. I had a couple of very close friends that knew that I would share things with. And, you know, when I did shared the news that I was leaving, And it was amazing. You know, 
So many people were so supportive and so loving and great. But there were also some that were pretty brutal. Like I have to say, like I had, I had some really, 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 really uh, horrible conversations that, you know, some of them were family and some of them were some people that you really thought were friends. However, I have to say it really reinforced everything. I remember one particular conversation, the person was just going on and on and on. So now I realize it was all their baggage that that was all the stuff that was in them. You know, it's, it was all, all them, all them. But at that time I sat there and I really have to say, when you do the work and you go deep, it didn't make me waver where it could have a year before that. It just showed me, I'm like, no, I made the right decision still and it moved on. The key to building your relationship flywheel will rely in your ability to design and build your own stage where you can have conversations with people, getting to know them, understanding their value, and sharing it to the world. This is the service that I offer, and I offer it to $100 million companies where we're setting record-breaking sales goals with it. If you want to know more about that, go to connectwithpablo.com. If you're just an individual that wants to build it, subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my email list on my website because coming soon is a community where I'm going to teach this to you personally. Go to connectwithpablo.com.